How are you? It's good to see you. Yeah, doing good, dude. Just raising the fund, um, doing all the same shit that I've been doing for a while. Yeah, <laughs> but, nice. uh, caught, caught up in the endless cycle of uh, raising money and investing it and everything. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I was looking at this chart this morning that was showing uh, the distribution of money, venture capital money raised in by city in the U.S. And it was actually New York was number one, which is kind of surprising. A lot of people think it's San Francisco. Yeah. New York, SF and L.A. So it's like oftentimes people don't necessarily associate, you know, L.A. with like the venture capital world and everything. But uh, it is kind of like an up and coming player, I would say. Um, and uh, it's fun, man. It's like a very diverse city with a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. And uh it's a very, very psychedelic city. A lot of people into psychedelics. So uh, it yeah. feels like a good place for what I'm doing. That's awesome. I mean, I see your tweets, like, or LinkedIn posts, and you literally just say, like, oh, who's in LA? Who wants to have dinner? Yeah. Who wants to come to this, like, secret party? How do they end up going? I'm always mm. curious. Who comes? Do you get a good crowd? Yeah. So usually, I think the trick is, is that, you know, you don't just say like, hey, I'm having a party, who wants to come and then tell everyone that responds that they can come. Um, you know, you usually, at the very least, want to like screen out, you know, <clears throat> them based on their profiles or whatever. And then also yeah. just usually <clears throat> people will oftentimes send like thoughtful messages like, hey, I really like the psychedelic thing that you're doing. This is what I'm doing. I think it'd be interesting to talk about this. And it's like, oh, I definitely want that person to come. So I try to like curate stuff um, for the yeah, most that's part. Sick. And usually um, the posts on LinkedIn and Twitter about the parties are kind of like near the tail end where I already have a core group of people that I know coming. And then it's like, let's just add like 10 more random people, you know? So it's not just like yeah, a bunch yeah. of random people like coming in off the street, but they usually go pretty well, man. I try to, um, for, for the majority of the events that I throw, um, I want it to be like high quality discussions around the psychedelic industry because that's kind of the industry that I'm operating in. And so I generally try and restrict it to people that are actually like actively working in psychedelics because there are a lot of people that are into psychedelics, but they don't have much to say other than kind of like a surface level. Like I did mushrooms last week for the first time and it was so sick, like the walls were moving <laughs> and it's like, well, that's great, man. I'm happy for you. But like, we're trying to go a little bit deeper, you know? So, um, there, the difference in like event outcomes can vary greatly depending on you know how uh, well you curate the group. I would say um, definitely. I don't want do to that. talk about psychedelics too much with you because all right, I Thank feel God. like everyone talks about that <laughs> with you. The fucking lord. <laughs> There's hours of podcasts on your podcast to like learn literally everything you need to know about that from like tribes in the rainforest who are having their IP stolen to like new companies in America that are doing amazing things. So could you like speak to a brief summary with respect to the mm. psychedelics industry? The industry itself. Yeah. I mean, like long story short, everyone knows that psychedelics have been kind of pushed underground by the war on drugs for the past, you know, however many decades, uh, over the last decade or so, the attitudes around psychedelics have started changing over the last like three years, the attitudes have started changing enough such that you can actually now start to build a for-profit enterprise around studying psychedelics and trying to get them approved by the FDA without sort of breaking any laws or going to jail. And um, so we now are in this weird situation where like psychedelics are still illegal, but there are companies valued in the hundreds of millions of dollars trading on the NASDAQ that are trying to get, you know, psilocybin or MDMA approved by the FDA. And some of those companies are less than three-ish years away from that happening. So... Um, there's this whole 
explosion of different companies starting up trying to either get existing drugs approved, invent new drugs, create some sort of product or service that can be used in conjunction with the psychedelic drugs. Um, and the fund that I started is on the venture capital side, not the public market side. And we're investing in sort of like seed stage companies that are doing interesting things with psychedelics. And we've uh, invested in like 12 such companies so far. So, Yeah, that's awesome. I don't want to ask you to pick between children, <laughs> but I wanted to know maybe from like a more high level perspective, which of your portfolio companies are you most excited about? Because some of them are like infrastructure companies, I believe. Yeah. Like stuff that needs to be done in the back end, but maybe it's not going to like ignite the imagination of the masses. But which of them are going to do that? And are you most like, not most excited about, but yeah. you know what I mean? Sure, sure. So there are, there are different companies that I'm excited about for different reasons. Um, in terms of companies that are actually having an impact now and not later, um, there's a company that's called uh, New Life, which is a company that is like a telehealth platform that facilitates uh, at-home ketamine experiences. So yeah, ketamine is kind of the one exception to all the other psychedelic drugs. Ketamine is actually approved by the FDA now, so doctors can prescribe it to you. So using this New Life app, you can go on there, you can talk to a doctor, and they will prescribe ketamine lozenges, like a thing that you put in your mouth, and they will mail this to your house totally legally, and then you can do the ketamine on your couch. It's amazing. <laughs> so uh, to date, <clears throat> they have uh, facilitated over 50,000 uh, ketamine experiences. It's quite, quite a lot of people tripping on K through this. Uh, <laughs> so I, I'm pretty stoked about what they're doing um, in terms of you know, people being able to benefit from psychedelics today. Um, and then on a slightly longer but still near-term future timeline, uh, we invested in MAPS, which is kind of the leading company that's developing MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. MDMA is probably going to be the first FDA-approved psychedelic outside of ketamine, which is already approved. Um, they're on track to get approved probably like the end of 2023, early 2024. So very, very soon, people are going to be legally having MDMA experiences under the supervision of a therapist. And then in terms of like longer timelines, um, you know, five to 10 years, there's a company called Pangea Botanica that is doing kind of scouring the earth for these psychoactive plants that are less commonly known. So everyone knows about like mushrooms and ayahuasca and stuff, but there's tons yeah. of other psychoactive and psychedelic plants out there. Pangea is looking at a lot of the lesser known psychedelic plants and seeing how they can be applied to things, you know, outside of just depression, anxiety, and PTSD. They're looking at them for, you know, gut health, um, Alzheimer's. Actually, I don't, I shouldn't say Alzheimer's. I don't know if that's like an official thing they're looking at. I know they're looking at neurodegeneration, which is kind of a okay. parent category of Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just exploring all the possible different uses of uh, psychedelics and psychoactive plants. So they, you know, on a longer uh, time horizon, will probably come up with some very cool things. What does that look like? Are there people uh, out exploring like... <laughs> I think it's not console. so much like they're, I don't know that they're like going through the jungle with the machete, but okay. it's like... I'm imagining Indiana Jones or psychedelics. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no, it's more like there are, there's a lot of literature about the more exotic psychoactive plants that has, I think, largely been kind of ignored by the science community. And so I think the first step is just getting a hold of these books and going through them and being like, huh, oh, there's this plant that was written about in like the 50s that's from this part of the world or whatever. Um, let's see if we can get our hands on some, maybe that we already have some and, uh, let's, uh, you know, run some tests and see what happens. Um, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. And then one other thing that's cool about that company is that, uh, 
the founding team of Pangea was involved in the founding of Compass Pathways and Atai, which are two of the oh, biggest okay. psychedelic publicly traded companies. So they actually have a track record in the field of uh, psychedelic medicine, which is super cool. Yeah. Um, I was going to go back to Maps, who are also one of the, like one of those category of company, right? They're, they're, they're huge valuation already. Yeah, is that correct? Maps. Um, yeah. yeah, their valuation is, uh, I think, to be determined. They're still private. Um, they're They've already finished their phase three clinical trials. In order to commercialize their MDMA therapy, they need to raise quite a lot of money. Um, and I think that the fact that they have to raise quite a lot of money means that they're probably going to be valued um, quite high. I can't say exact numbers, but okay. yeah, I think it's, they're definitely on the, on the private side, probably one of the higher valued uh, psychedelic companies. So as a VC, that's not a seed stage investment for you? Definitely not. No, it's okay. um, definitely later stage. Yeah. Okay. So you, you, are hap- you do like cover a broader spectrum when you feel like it's right? Yeah. The, the goal is to do as early, as early as possible when it makes sense. But also there's some value in like being opportunistic in life. You know, you never want to just be like, this is what I do and never make exceptions, you know, because sometimes there's cool things that kind of fall outside of those strict guidelines. And so it, I think it pays to be uh, flexible. But the vast majority, I think out of the um, 12 companies we've invested in so far, it's like eight of them are seed, two of them are pre-seed and the other are like later stage. And how much money of the 10 mil target size have you got left? Still trying to raise the 10 million in total. Um, we have, I've raised uh, 3.7 so far and we're recording this right now around like Christmas and you know, everyone in finance knows that like December, nothing happens. Everyone's like on vacation and stuff. So, okay. uh, it's like a slow time to be raising, but we have a lot of conversations that we're hoping will convert into investor dollars in Q1. So hopefully within the next month or two, um, and out of the 3.7 that we've raised have deployed, I guess out of today, 1.5 of that. So we've put 1.5 million into those 12 companies. Okay, cool. And now this is like a question from being inexperienced, but yeah. do you have a big bank account with the remaining one point whatever billion dollars in? I mean, million dollars. <laughs> I wish it and was do you just sort of, Do you just sort of, is that how it works? Like how, can you briefly yeah, explain no, how a VC is <laughs> yeah, structured? So, okay. So yes, there is a bank account with cash sitting in it. Um, that's kind of the, the short answer. The slightly more complicated answer is that it may not have all of the rest of that money sitting in it. Um, what will often happen is that the investors in the VC fund will sign like a document that says, I commit to investing $100,000 in this VC fund over the next like three years. There might be what they call a capital call structure, which means that I put a third of it in per year for the next three years so that, you know, all the money's not just like sitting there up front. Okay. Um, it could also mean that the capital calls are done as needed. So rather than just every year I put in a third, it's like the money sits in my account until the manager of the fund calls me and says, hey, we're actually investing in this company. We need 20% of your committed capital within the next 10 days, like, you know, wire it within the next 10 days. Otherwise, like penalties apply. Um, and then, you know, depending on the complexity of the VC fund, um, the money that's sitting in the bank might be in some sort of like high interest money market account so that it's earning at least a little bit of interest. Um, this is something that is more important now, now that interest rates are starting to creep back up for the last like 10 years, there was basically no interest rates. So it didn't really matter if you were just sitting in cash or in a money market account, but 
Yeah, the short answer is there is a bank account and there's like a million dollars in it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, do you have like, do you outsource like lawyers, accountants, etc.? How does that work? Yeah. Yeah. They're not, there's n- the money. It's not like my personal bank account that this money is sitting in. Um, I'd hope so. So you, you generally, <laughs> you have to work with, um, so you need documents like to do the legal formation of the fund. You need... Um, some kind of bank account set up specifically for the fund. You need uh, an accountant to make sure that there's like an audit done to make sure that money's not, you know, leaving the account um, inappropriately. Generally, um, people use like these established service providers that kind of do like all-in-one fund administration. I use a company called AngelList. There's a company called Carta that is a competitor that a lot of people use. But yeah, generally, especially when you're like first starting out with a fund, you um, don't have like a big reputation. And so it's very important that you work with like an established service provider so that the investors know like, oh, well, I may not know Brahm, but I know like AngelList or Carta, those companies have like billions of dollars in assets on their platform. We know that they're trusted. We know that they're safe. And we know that like they're not going to let, you know, inappropriate things happen like with the money. So yeah, yeah, Yeah. it's kind of like a, it means that they don't have to worry so much about the, you know, reputation, security, uh, improprieties, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Um, on Mark Andreessen's blog, I don't know if you've ever come across it, but he does an interesting piece on your career. And the first thing he says is your career is not to be planned because everything's changing all the time. Yeah. And I'm assuming when you were doing like computer science back at uni, back in the day, you weren't thinking of being a psychedelic um, and I was wondering if you could speak to like how you sort of how and why you made the jumps from uni to hedge funds and quant trading to then psychedelic podcasting and then VC yeah and what skills were most useful to you in making those jumps I'm talking like network mm-hmm. ability to learn people skills uh, numerical skills etc 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 yeah. Um, so I did an undergrad in economics um, at a not good university. I didn't go to like Harvard or an Ivy League or anything like that. Um, and after that, I kind of I've been like a musician my whole life. And so I like graduated from university and like didn't even do anything. I just was like hanging out in recording studios, making music <laughs> with my brother for like a year and a half. Um, and then I was like, uh, this sucks. I need to like figure out how to make uh, money. <laughs> and. Ended up going to do this like graduate certificate program in finance. And there was this guest speaker that was in my class. And he was like this dude who had uh, used to work at a big hedge fund in New York and had moved down to South Florida. And he was talking about like quantitative trading. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I like, you know, numbers and math and like patterns and stuff. It It felt almost like very musical to me in a sense. And I ended up talking to this dude. He was setting up his own hedge fund in South Florida where I lived. And um, we kind of hit it off and he's like, hey, do you want to do like an unpaid internship for me? And I was like, no, dude, I need money. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) Um, And so he was like, all right, fair enough. And so then I like went and did a bunch of other things for maybe, I don't know, six or nine months. And then I'm literally like hanging out with my friend one day and I get a call from this dude. He's like, hey, man, you remember me? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, (laughs) 
I have enough money to pay someone now. You want a, you want a job? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, dude, I'll quit my job today. I literally like went back to my job and like quit my job. And I was like, I'll go work for this dude because he's going to teach me how to do like quantitative trading. Um, and it was literally just me and this guy. It was like the two, I, it was like me and this, you know, 40, 50 year old dude in an office, like together alone. And it was like a million dollars of his personal money. And we were like trading. He was teaching me a bunch of shit. I knew like fucking nothing, dude. Like none of the really? shit from nothing. my, yeah, none of the shit from like my yeah. economics degree, like applied to this like, <laughs> short-term quantitative stuff. And he was just like, read this book, read that book, whatever. Um, and he also told me that I needed to like learn how to program, um, which I had kind of dabbled in a little bit, but I couldn't write code to fucking save my life. Like you know, <laughs> there was, it's not, I was not accomplished. I couldn't build anything that did anything useful. Um, but he was like, listen, dude, I need you to write a program that like does this and this. And I was like, fuck dude, I don't know how to do that, but I'll, you know, I'll <laughs> figure it out. And so I would literally just like spend all day basically teaching myself to code while doing projects for this dude. Um, and you know, I mentioned we started with like a million dollars of his own money and within 18 months had raised an additional like 59 million. So we had like $60 million under management, which was pretty insane. Um, yeah. I mean, he, despite, you know, humble beginnings of just me and this dude in an office with a million of his own money, he had come from a hedge fund in New York that had a pretty recognizable name and he had like a Yale MBA and everything. And so, you know, he was, you know, he had some credibility and the performance of the trading was not bad. I mean, it wasn't like incredible, but it was like pretty solid. And so, yeah, started raising money and it was like all of a sudden within two years, it's like, Oh, we're managing 60 million now. This is sick. Uh, <laughs> and we had hired like three other people. And so we had like more people in the office and I was like, wow, this is crazy, dude. I'm like a part of this thing. I was like, this thing is going to be like billions of dollars. And I'm going to be, <laughs> since I was the first hire, I'm going to be like the number two guy. I'm going to be fucking rich. <laughs> um, you know, it was like really exciting. And then the performance of the fund, it didn't like blow up or anything, but we just started treading water, meaning like we would like make 1% one day and then like lose 1% the next day. We were yeah. just like going sideways. And in the hedge fund space, in VC, once you invest, the money's like locked up, you know, because you're investing in startups that if you, you can't just like ask them for your money back, you know? So in yeah. VC, you put the money in, you can't take it out. In the hedge fund world, that's not the case. You can invest in a hedge fund and then call them up three months later and be like, hey, I want my money out. You know, I don't think. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So and especially when you're a new hedge fund and you don't have like a big 10 year track record of, you know, success. People are like, oh, things don't look like they're going well. I think I'm going to pull my money out. So it's like we're managing 60 million and then we're starting to like tread water and these people start calling up and they're like yeah, we think we're going to take our money out. And so it's like, then we're managing like 50 and then we're managing 40 mm -hmm. and, uh, ended up like firing some of the people that had hired. And then eventually my boss is like, he's like, Hey man, I, he's like, I think I could pay you for like three more months. <laughs> and, uh, then you're going to have to like find another job. And I'm like, fuck. Okay. Yeah. Um, turned out that one of the big investors in the fund that I was working out there was, an even bigger hedge fund that was very established in Los Angeles. And I had met some of the guys um, from that fund. They liked me and they ended up offering me a job and I had to move to LA. So <clears throat> moved to LA. Now I'm working at a fund that manages, I think at the time when I started like 4 billion, um, by the Jeez. time I left, it was almost eight or 9 billion. 
Um, and there were like 80 employees. So it was a very, very different kind of vibe. Um, very much more established, you know, like big office building and like the most expensive part of LA oh, catered nice. lunch every single day, Equinox membership, like, you know, all that, all that kind of shit. So that kind of, it was like that. Um, and I, I, I liked it a lot. There was, it was interesting, pretty good, pretty good money. Although not like, you know, I think when people think of hedge funds, they think like, here's your $20 million bonus. You know, they think like massive money. It was not anything close to that. Yeah. Um, I liked it. I didn't love it. And as time went on, it became increasingly clear that I didn't love it. And then when COVID hit, it's like, now I'm doing this job that I don't love, like from my apartment. And I'm like, dude, this fucking blows. Like I'm just sitting yeah. there alone in my apartment <laughs> doing all this shit. And, um, I was about to turn 30 in the first year of COVID and I was really thinking like, do I want to go into the next decade of my life uh, doing this thing that I don't really love? And after thinking about it for a while, I was like, no, I don't. I just want to start with a clean slate. And luckily I had, you know, saved a decent amount of money during the past few years, like working at this hedge fund. And so I was like, you know, I can survive for a little bit without a job, like I'm just going to quit. So I ended up quitting with zero, literally zero plan for what to do next. <laughs> um, just like a few weeks before I turned 30 and kind of fucked around for a while. Didn't really even try to figure out what I was going to do. But eventually I was like, all right, I need to get fucking serious about some kind of career. So I like wrote down all these things that I was interested in. And I was like, I think I wrote down 10 things. It was like psychedelics is one of them. Uh, climate change is another one, a bunch of other stuff. And I was like, I'm going to spend a week going deep into each of these things. And at the end of these 10 weeks, I'll have like a real solid understanding of what's out there. And then maybe I'll make a career decision. And I started doing research. And my goal was I was like, I'm just going to like write a blog post or like a paper or an essay about each of these topics to help me like solidify my thinking. And after doing that for like an hour, I was like, all right, I can't write an essay. I'm like too ADD. I'm just going to like make a podcast <laughs> instead. <laughs> so I start, I made like this podcast about crypto the first week. And then the second week I made a podcast about psychedelics. Um, the reason psychedelics were on the radar is because I had been using psychedelics for most of my adult life. Like I discovered them in my early twenties. They were kind of a big part of just my life outside of work. Um, and during 2020, before I left the hedge fund, I saw that there were all these psychedelic companies going public. And I was like, wow, this is crazy. There's a psychedelic stock. What the fuck? Like, I can't believe this is even a thing. <laughs> um, so I, the second week of my little 10 week expedition into like new areas of interest, I made this video about psychedelic medicine and the industry that was forming around it. It got a lot of positive reception on YouTube and Reddit. And I really enjoyed making it. And so instead of going off, and researching the rest of those 10 things, I just kept making psychedelic videos. And oh, wow. I was like the one of the only people talking about the business of psychedelics at the time. There was like one other dude that had this channel, literally like one other guy. And um, people started like emailing me. They're like, yo, I love these uh, videos you're making about investing in psychedelics. I've got, you know, 100 grand that I want to invest. Can you give me some advice? And then companies were also reaching out and they were like, hey, we're a startup in the psychedelic space. We're trying to raise money. Can you help promote us on your podcast? And I was like, man, I have people with money coming to me and I have companies that are trying to raise money coming to me. Like that's basically the ingredients for a fund. Maybe I should start a fund. Uh, so 
that is why I decided to start a psychedelic fund. And that was a long ass answer to your question. <laughs> but um, that was like, the, that's like the full story. And going back to your original point, clearly no planning involved. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in terms of skills that are transferable, obviously having some like knowledge of finance is helpful, but um, the type of finance you do in early stage venture capital is very, very different from like the quant trading stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. So first of all, that is sick. I think that's so like admirable, especially like there's a lot of, I don't know, whenever I'm looking at who does what, I, you look on their LinkedIn and nine times out of 10, Harvard, Oxford, yeah. Cambridge, then like a big consultancy or bank. And then you start thinking like, if that's not me, is that the only way to do it? And I suppose that's like a bit of a shortcut in your thinking and you're like trying to pattern match when really life is not that simple, the world is not that simple. And like you've leveraged like the internet, which is a, still a new thing. And that's mm -hmm. like enabled you to reach people that you never would be able to reach before, research stuff you wouldn't be able to do before. So I think it's sick that you've had that much of an open mind to just pursue your curiosity and stuff like that. Thanks, man. Yeah, um, the, the whole like <clears throat> top tier university thing, it's rough. I still have a big chip on my shoulder about it. Um, really? Yeah, totally, dude. I, I'm like, man, my early career would have been so much easier if I had just like gotten my shit together and just like applied to a you know, much better college or something and actually done internships in college instead of just like do whatever what the fuck I was doing, which was not internshipping. Um, <laughs> mostly just working out, honestly. Um, and yeah, it's, it's crazy how, as you get into the world of like high finance or whatever, so many of those people that are in it did go through that path. And it's like, they had a very, very different experience than, um, you know, those who didn't. But that must give you like an edge because you've got a new way of thinking that other people potentially don't have. I mean, I remember yeah, when, not, maybe so when we were, when we were talking a few months ago, I was saying like, oh yeah, maybe I would like want to build a company in like the effective altruism space. Mm -hmm. And immediately you were like, uh, I don't know about that. And I was like, why is Brom such a bloody cynic? And since then, we've obviously had SBF has blown up. The whole thing has been is a massive, obviously not everything, but you know what I mean? And it's like you've, you're able to see through that quite well. Yeah. And maybe I'm just really naive, but from your hedge fund life, have you found you'll be able to be more objective about things? Yeah, I think that the like quantitative trading, I mean, finance in general does especially yeah no especially like quant trading and short-term trading does teach you a lot of objectivity because you very quickly figure out that you're wrong um and like the venture capital space you can not realize you're wrong for like years because it takes forever for these companies to do anything yeah. but in the short-term trading space dude you can realize you were wrong like 10 minutes after you make the decision <laughs> you know like literally <laughs> 10 like 10 minutes after a trade goes on and it's like down you know, an insane amount. Um, and so you kind of learn that no matter how strongly you felt about some particular thing being right, like the market or the world or whatever, like really doesn't care about that. And uh, yeah, so yeah, know, I think, I think it does train you to have some sort of like detachment from emotions. Um, and you get really used to being told that you're wrong. Um, over and over again and in a financially painful way yeah and you have no choice you, at that point you have two choices i guess like one choice is you can be like 
actually I'm right and the market's wrong. I'm going to keep doing the same thing, which actually a lot of people get caught up in that um, pattern mm. of thinking. Or you can be like, I am wrong and I now need to adjust my thinking. Um, otherwise, I'm going to keep getting the shit kicked out of me. Yeah. And I guess doing that for 10 years is going to make yeah. you a pretty tough cookie. <laughs> but in the, so, um, in the VC space, it's harder because there's a lot more emotions involved because you're like ta- dealing with humans. Um, in the mm. quant trading space, you're not really talking to anyone. You're just like writing code. You're maybe talking to your colleagues, but you're not talking to the companies you're investing in. Or like if you're investing in some oil derivative, you're not talking to the oil people. You know, it's just it's just you and the numbers. In VC, there's like so much hype around things. And you're talking to these founders. You're talking to other investors that are getting in on the round. And it's like super hard to stay objective. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. How did you you're obviously a people person. And if you've been in the back room of a hedge fund for 10 years or whatever, was that natural or have you always been like that? You just didn't happen to be in a people job or like what's going on there? I don't, I don't know that I'm a people person. I think I'm more naturally introverted actually. Um, and I think I had to train myself to be more extroverted, uh, in the VC role in the, in the hedge fund. Um, obviously like you talk to your coworkers, you know, over coffee and stuff, but like, I would spend, you know, 90% of the day just writing code. And now I spend like 90% of the day on Zoom calls with prospective investors <laughs> or portfolio companies or whatever. So it's like a totally different type of thing. And I actually, I get burnt out from talking to people all the, like all day and stuff. So um, that's why it's better to do the podcast in the morning because I haven't gotten my yeah. conversation burnout yet. Um, but yeah, dude, I think like in general, it's probably good to be able to switch between introvert and extrovert and if you can. Because uh, yeah, both how, both are valuable. Yeah, I, I hear that. How do you let loose? Like, what do you do on a? Mm. Are you a, a grinder? Are you? Yeah, I'm. A, I'm kind of off a, on Friday nights. <laughs> I'm. I'm a bit of a grinder. Um, in terms of letting loose, I mean, it's like the same thing that a lot most people do. You know, go to the gym. Um, I don't really drink and party that much, honestly. Like, I will, but it's not a huge part of my life psychedelics obviously play a role there um but i think for me especially when it's like dude sorry my phone is going off don't worry worry. um since i'm sitting down and like talking to people and staring into a camera so much like it's very very important like get outside be active um and uh, obviously you can do that anywhere but in la it's like it's like a place where you can really do that because like the weather's usually good you got the beach you know that kind of thing yeah 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 how much can you allow for in your life partying drinking going out girls or boys any of those things um i mean you can definitely allow for a lot more of it than those like influencer people um make it out to be right um i think especially like interpersonal relationships whether you're talking about friends or romantic partners like dude if you don't have that stuff like you're fucked you know what i mean like it's point like why are you even working if you don't have like a good relationship with like your girlfriend your boyfriend like or even just like your friends and your family um i think that stuff is super super important and it's super important to cultivate relationships with people that um work in different fields than you do too you know you don't want to just be one of these people that's like a tech guy that only hangs out with like other tech guys that do the same type of tech that you do (laughs) um it just makes it's certain it's certainly nothing wrong with like hanging out with those types of people but um you got to get other ideas from other places and um just make friendships that kind of expand your worldview. and i think 
I would say it's, you can have a similar attitude towards like just the content you consume. Um, like I don't really listen to psychedelic podcasts. I also don't really listen to um, like VC podcasts very often. Like sometimes I will, but um, yeah, for me, it's very important to have like a variety of types of things coming into my life. But then again, I'm not like some 30 year old multimillionaire, you know, maybe I would be if I was more singularly focused. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I yeah. guess. Yeah. It's one of those things we we'll have to wait and see. Because yeah. Like there there are tell. some people that seem to really like eat, sleep, and breathe the same thing over and over again. And um, there's definitely something to that. But, and if that's just what you're naturally attracted to, if like, if that comes easy to you, then like maybe don't try and change it. But if you're a person that's like, dude, I wish I could go out and like hang out with my friends and my girl but I got to fucking grind and that's like making you <laughs> depressed that maybe you should just go hang out with your friends and your girl, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Say you, you've just recorded a podcast. Now you're doing like a, a discovery call with an LP. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with like the slippage between doing like such a variety of tasks? Cause you're clearly not a one trick pony. Mm-hmm. It's tough, man. And, um, going back to the switch between the hedge fund world and this world, I would focus on like the same thing all day. And now it's like having to do that context switching. It's tough. Um, and I think you definitely lose something by switching so often. It makes it very hard to um, just really go deep on any one thing. Uh, but yeah, I don't really have an answer to how I do it other than I just do it. And I try to use you know, very basic tools like notes just to make sure that I'm kind of caught up on things and review on things. And um, I'll oftentimes, especially if it's like an important call, I'll try to make sure that there's like some scheduled space before it starts. So I won't have like a two hour podcast and then right at the end of that, like get on a call with an important investor or something like, you know, I make sure my calendar is not set up that way. Yeah. Nice. So you're not talking to Elon Musk after this? No, (laughs) I talked to him before actually. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to get Elon to invest. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) <laughs> it would be I, I'm sure he's you know he's he may have made some investments in psychedelics already I really have no idea but given the amount that he talks about them it wouldn't surprise yeah. me how do you think about relationships at the moment have you got a girlfriend have you no. been looking for a girlfriend yeah definitely people? looking for a girlfriend ladies you okay know, everyone <laughs> um, <laughs> no I I uh, dated someone up pretty seriously up until about a year ago and then we broke up and for the past year, you know, there have been some little things that have kind of popped up here and there, but um, have not entered into any sort of like serious romantic relationship with anyone. And yeah, I mean, obviously want to change that at some point. So yeah, it's tough that you, on- you, can, you can like go on the dating apps and stuff and I'm on some of them, but I don't think that that is like where the uh yeah i don't know that just doesn't feel like the answer i think it's more about like meeting people through networks of people etc i think it's like ideally you want someone who is just like connected to friends or you know a second degree connection i also try to avoid people in the same industry as me just because it feels like the whole you know shitting where you eat type thing but there are also a lot of stories of very good couples that met um through their work so you you Mm. probably don't want to write that off entirely what does your uh, ideal woman look like? If we're talking about um, personality traits, I would say yeah. 
There are a lot. There are a few things that I've sort of realized are important. You want to make sure that you are not the most important thing in her life or the most interesting thing in her life. You know, there are a lot of people, both men and women, do this, where like they put their entire identity as like their romantic relationship. You know, uh, so I generally like dating people that have something that they are very excited about going on in their life. Could be a career, like a professional career. Could be an artistic pursuit. Um, but they have something that is like their thing and they are not just like sitting around waiting for, um, a romantic relationship to become their thing. And unfortunately there's a lot of shallow people out there, both guys and girls that, uh, you know, just don't have a ton of shit going on. And so they put all of their energy into one partner. Um, that's probably like a critical thing for me. One of the most critical things. Um, someone who wants to like help they see like their partnership as an opportunity for both people to help each other uh, like reach their highest potential I would say Um, and obviously someone who takes care of themselves is like relatively clean living etc that kind of thing yeah and wants to have kids you know I want to have kids at some point so that's a big one yeah that's a lot of people don't want to have kids that's totally cool yeah I I do so yeah yeah 100% yeah um i was gonna also ask like i've you you come across well you don't come across you are a very like down-to-earth guy you're not you don't appear to be motivated by like being a billionaire and having a huge yacht and sailing around greek islands all summer um i know like i'm not i'm not trying to be andrew tate no yeah Um. (laughs) are you sure i think a bald head might suit you (laughs) it might might. you never know (laughs) But yeah, like what, what motivates you? What, what, what's the goal? Um, yeah, I mean, to some extent, money is important, right? Like you don't want to... I didn't grow up in like a super rich family or anything. And there were certainly periods in my early 20s where I did not have much money at all. Like literally, like there were definitely moments where I like overdrew my checking account, like trying to buy toilet paper, you know? <laughs> that fucking sucked. How, um, how tight did you get? Like literally like overdrawing my account while trying to buy like a single roll of toilet paper. <laughs> like um that was that was due entirely to my own dumbassery, not like you know, <laughs> due to the fact that I was just incapable of making money or whatever. But um yeah, so I definitely get what it's like to, you know, not have a ton of cash or whatever and to not have, you know, a big like safety net from your family. So I wanna make sure that, you know, I'm set up for like six financial success for the rest of my life. And there are certainly some things that require a lot of money to do that I would kind of like to do at some point or experience. Such um, as even just things that are basic. Like, I yacht. think it would, be, I think no yacht and fuck yachts. <laughs> um, things like it would be cool to have houses or condos in like different cities that I like living in. You know what I mean? And it doesn't yeah. even, I'm not even talking like a mansion, but it would be kind of sick to have a place in New York, and then it would be kind of sick to have a nice house somewhere in like Northern California on the beach or whatever, you know, just like so that you're not stuck in the same place all the time. Um, there's, you know, certain types of travel that like cost, you know, decent amounts of money that would be fun to do, um, like mountaineering expeditions and that sort of thing, which I've done in the past, which is super fun. Um, and to go to the next level, those things quickly creep up into the ten, twenty thousand $20,000 range. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, 
even just owning a home in a place like LA or New York is like requires a lot of cash. <laughs> yeah. Unless you want to, you know, especially if you want to live in like the neighborhoods that you want to live in. Um, so yeah. And of course, like having money to support, you know, my kids and family when it gets to that. So money is a motivation to some extent. I think the thing that motivates me a lot more than that is just maybe two things. One, working on problems that are very interesting to me. Um, you know, when I worked in the hedge fund space, I kind of lost interest near the end of it. And it was like, I was getting decent money, but you know, it was like, it just kind of felt routine. So I like having like novelty and stuff that keeps things interesting. And then the other thing is having some level of freedom and flexibility and ownership over my time and my career. Um, luckily I've, I've been fortunate enough to work in environments where even at like the big hedge fund, I had like a decent amount of autonomy, but I still had, you know, ultimately there was like one or two people that controlled everything about my career opportunities. Um, you know, my pay, whether or not I had a job, et cetera. And, I kind of like being in charge of my own destiny to some extent. Now, of course, with that power comes like a lot of downsides. Um, yeah. It means that you have no one to shift the blame onto. It ha really has to be kind of like a, the buck stops here kind of thing. Um, if you are trying to be like an entrepreneurial type person and run your own business or whatever, if things suck, it's entirely your fault and you can't blame it on, you know, the, broader company or your boss or whatever, it's literally your fault. And so it takes yeah. a lot of, you know, I don't think everyone is kind of cut out for that. And I think, um, there's comfort in having people to pass blame onto. Um, and so, yeah, having, having that level of like control and independence is very, very important to me. Um, I feel like there was one other thing I was going to say, but I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. Money yeah. and autonomy. Yeah, yeah, the autonomy. Oh, and you know, you I think, think um, one thing that I have started to enjoy over the last few months is I've started to build a bit of a team around me at Empath. I was and, actually just about to, yeah. I was just about to ask about that. That must be super rewarding. And it, yeah. And like giving, obviously the opportunities at the moment are not that great. Cause like, this is a small company, like whatever. I'm not saying I'm like some amazing boss, just like handing out like really cool shit, but it is cool to give people opportunities that are interesting to them and to um, start kind of like sharing this thing that you've created with other people. That's, that's certainly yeah. rewarding. Yeah. Shout out to Aya. Mm -hmm. How's she doing? Aya's doing great. Um, we also have Melody who oh, nice. um, is a venture partner. She graduated from Johns Hopkins with her master's in uh, biotech. And she does a lot of like technical and scientific due diligence on the companies that we're analyzing. And then um, Samantha or Sam, as I call her, we're all about efficiency. So we try to get rid of the extra syllables, you know, so we just do Sam. Uh, Sam joined as actually a partner in the fund. So now, you know, so it's like me, Sam, Melody and Aya that are kind of in charge of uh, the thing at the moment. And, you know, they all have different skills. They're all working on different things, all have different motivations about why they're interested in psychedelics. And it's just kind of cool to grow the, the family a little bit. How did you meet them? And how did you know that they were going to be a good fit? Did mm. you interview loads of people or? No, I interviewed some people. So oh, since I started doing this, um, a lot of people reach out and are like, hey, 
psychedelics are really cool. I like psychedelics. I want to work with you. Um, one of the advantages to working in like a field that is interesting and exciting is you'll have like lots of people reaching out, offering to do shit for you. Um, yeah. And there were a few times where I was like, okay, yeah, you can do this thing for me. And then the person like never really did much or they just kind of sucked at it. And uh, so nothing ever really came of those opportunities. There were also a lot of people that reached out and just seemed, I don't know, very cookie cutter. It was very much like literally people, you know, that were like worked at McKinsey or something. And they're like, I am excited by the financial upside inherent to the <laughs> expanding psychedelic medicine industry. And I would like to help exploit this opportunity, you know, whatever. And I was just like, ah, I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so with Samantha, she has a very strong background in pharma. She's worked at a number of different psychedelic companies over the past few years. And she also does independent consulting, scientific consulting for VC funds, for companies, et cetera. And I got connected with her randomly through this guy that I talked to one time and she was telling me about her independent consulting practice. And I was at the time I was actually in the process of analyzing this company that we were thinking about investing in. And I was like, how much does it cost for you to do like a scientific breakdown of a company? And she's like, it costs this much. And I'm like, okay, why don't you like do this for me? And so I paid her to do basically a technical report on, on a company. And I thought she did a pretty good job. She was easy to work with. And, um, I ended up doing that again with her. And then we just like kept talking and she started helping me out with like all sorts of other stuff. And I was like, man, why don't, why don't you just like become a partner in the fund and just work on this like full time? Cause it seems like we're already kind of doing mm -hmm. that. And, um, so that was, that was the source of um, my connection with Sam. Does um, partnership include uh, buying into the fund? Um, it could, it, yeah, but that is not what happened in this case. Um, okay. Yeah, I think, you know, ideally, I think like that's something that you would probably want to do in a situation where people had like the amount of money to make a significant contribution, but yeah. you, know, you also don't want to like restrict yourself to that universe of people if that makes oh, yeah, sense. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Um and then the other two, Melody and Aya, both of them just wrote cold emails to me and that were very, very thoughtful and personalized and not too cookie cutter and not like too um McKinsey blood sucking, you hmm. know, <laughs> type energy. And I had you know, Aya reached out to me when she was living in Lebanon. So we didn't like meet in person, but we had a couple of Zoom calls. Melody happens to live in LA. So we went to lunch and um, started off slow, did like some random little projects here and there, and then eventually made it like a more serious commitment. Yeah, that's super cool. Um, what, what stood out to you from their cold emails? Can you like dive a bit deeper mm -hmm. on that? Yeah. Um, I think that's like a serious a meta skill. It is. It is. If you can, you know, I, I will say that, um, Aya's email to me, part of the reason it stood out is because her name was Aya, which is like ayahuasca. And I was like, that'd be funny if like someone named <laughs> Aya worked at a psychedelic fund <laughs> that, that definitely had like a little bit to do with the fact that I even opened <laughs> the email. What okay. I remember from her email was like, Hey, um, I'm very interested in psychedelics. I just graduated from, um, university, I, over the course of my university time, I did an internship at a healthcare venture capital fund, um, for like a year and a half. 
And so I did a bunch of stuff, including like reach out to potential investors, um, this and that. But I thought that like the generic like healthcare focus was just so boring and soulless that even though they offered me a full-time job, I turned it down because I wanted to do something that was like more interesting to me. And I think that what you're doing would be like really interesting to me. I was like, that's fucking cool. You know, like fresh out of school, had an opportunity to go into like VC, but turned it down because just didn't feel like it was like the right spiritual fit or whatever. And has already learned some things about VC, so it wouldn't be starting from scratch, if that makes sense. You know? Yeah, that's sick. And then um, Melody's email was, I think she had put something about graduating from Johns Hopkins in her um, subject line, which for people that, you know, don't know, like Johns Hopkins is one of the top psychedelic research institutions. Like they are behind a lot of the big studies that have really helped move the psychedelic medicine field forward. And so that to me was immediately kind of interesting. And, you know, at the time she was just like, it would be cool to talk to you and maybe help out in some way. I don't know. And she lived, you know, 20 minutes from where I lived. And so it's like, why don't we just have lunch? And, um, at the lunch, you know, she presented herself very well, came off as very curious. Um, a lot of times you talk to people, especially I feel like it might be a bit of a gender thing, especially guys, like they'll come and they'll be like, I want to work for you. And then you'll like take them to lunch and they'll be like, here's everything that I'm going to, they just like won't stop. Like, it's like they turn into like a dick measuring contest immediately. It's like, <laughs> bro, I don't know. Like, yeah. why don't you, <laughs> why don't you just show me that you're like open-minded and curious? Um, so both of the, I think that's probably like a big part of it is like open-mindedness and, uh, you know, curiosity. Yeah, that's sick. And then turning this back around to you, like you obviously reach out to investors and have those conversations. Mm. How do you know what that person is receptive to? Because there will be some people who did go to McKinsey and they are looking for a robotic email. Yeah, and then yeah. there will also be people who have spent their whole life in a forest. Uh, it's easy to like play that card so so you're saying like when i'm reaching out to investors potential investors how do you yeah, reach do you out research them? yeah do you... i do i do do research here's the thing about investors um the vast majority of the money that i've raised has come not from me just reaching out to people it's from um introductions to, um like from existing investors basically um, okay, it's very, right. very hard to do cold outreach. You know, most people, especially like in people that have the kind of money to put, you know, a hundred, $250,000 into something, they're not going to read your cold email. Um, so it doesn't matter how good your cold email is cause they're not even going to open it. <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I got really lucky because there was this guy that was one of my good friends. He still is a good friend, but he moved, um, out of LA. So I don't see him very often. He moved all the way to Michigan, very, very different type of environment. But he was like a good friend of mine that was kind of in the crypto space. And when I started the psychedelic fund, he was like, there's this guy who's an investor in my crypto startup and he's pretty into psychedelics. You should talk to him. So I like talk to this dude. His name's Nima. And Nima was like, that sounds cool. I'll invest. Here's two other guys I know that I think might invest. And then both those guys invested. And then both of those guys were like, here's some people that I think might invest. And it was literally just like that. Um, yeah. There's some people that I've raised money from that I have cold outreach to um, through LinkedIn, not through email. I think it's like easier to reach out through um, LinkedIn. Um, and then there's been some money that has come inbound, like, hey, I listened to your podcast or I saw you tweet or whatever. But 
yeah, very rarely has it been like I just cold emailed someone and they invested. And I've spent a lot of time doing that, especially oh, in the really? early days. Yeah, I would like yeah. get a hold of these lists and um, from like various investor conferences, et cetera. And I would like find these people on LinkedIn and I would send them messages and stuff. And uh, maybe I'm just bad at it, but most of the time it did, they didn't even respond, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Do LPs at VC funds have input in where you invest your money and how you invest your money? And also, I'd love it if you briefly mentioned some of your LPs. Sure, sure. Because I yeah. think it's fucking sick. <laughs> um, absolutely. We can, we can talk about that. So the first answer is, obviously, like when you set up the fund, you have a thesis. So like our thesis is, you know, early stage psychedelic medicine. So we can't go too far outside that thesis in general because it's kind of like written into the fund docs. Um, there are some funds that have what's called a... LPA, I don't even fucking remember the acronym, limited partner, like advisory committee or whatever. And basically what that means is that, and it totally depends on the fund. There are some funds where literally every investment has to be voted on by the limited partners. In some funds, it's like, if you want to make an investment over a certain size, then the limited partners all have to agree. Or it could be, if you want to make an investment that is outside of the main thesis, then the limited partners all have to agree. Um, my fund doesn't have anything like that. Like it's, you know, kind of totally up to me, but just because it's like legally totally up to me, doesn't mean that like, that's the best way to operate. I still try to get people's input and say like, Hey, what would you think if we invested in something that's like a little bit weird and maybe not exactly like what we talked about when, you know, you first invested, I'm just curious. And usually they're like, Hey man, you know, we gave you the money cause we trust you. So it's like up to you. Um, and then in terms of, yeah, the investors that we've raised from. So uh, Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon both personally invested in the fund, totally separate from like their activities at Andreessen Horowitz. They were really cool because they came in really before I had done much of anything at all. Like I had, you know, the podcast, but I think I had raised maybe like four or 500K or something. It was like I'd raised barely anything. I think I had made one or two investments. It was like... I, I look back, I'm like, dude, I don't think I would have invested in me if like I had the <laughs> opportunity back then, you know, there was like nothing yeah. that I had done to show, show for anything. Um, so that was, was super that quite cool. a big moment. Like, was that like, yeah, yeah. Or were you it just was, like, no, yeah. I thought it was, I was shitting my pants. <laughs> it was, yeah, no, it was exciting. It was very exciting. Yeah. Um, and then, um, Jim O'Shaughnessy, who is a pretty big kind of like wall street name, um, he's written a lot of different books. Um, one of them is called uh, What Works on Wall Street that was like a bestseller, um, I think, in like the early 2000s. And he built O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, which is one of the sort of pioneers of like index investing, I guess you could say. He's, I believe, sold that business since, but now is very, very active in the um, you know venture capital and um, private investing world. He, for those who are following the AI space, there's a company called Stability AI that made the stable diffusion model. Uh, stable diffusion is used in like Lenza and a lot of those apps that make the AI avatars that you're starting to see on Twitter everywhere. Jim right. was a major investor in Stability and is actually the chairman of their board. So, you know, he kind of went from this more traditional Wall Street world to exotic early stage, you know, investing in things like AI and uh, yeah, psychedelics. Cool. He, he ended up investing in, um, in empath and has been a major supporter 
So it's awesome to have That's him on board cool. as well. Yeah. And do they like give you advice and or like introduce you to people or take you to dinners? Um, a, a little bit of yes to all of those questions. Um, obviously, every investor is going to have you know a different level of involvement in the fund, right? Um, and especially when you talk about someone who has reached like the heights that those guys have reached, as you can imagine, they are incredibly busy people, right? But they generally still try and spend time um, with, you know, everything that they're involved with. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's they, they've definitely all, all of those people in that list have been helpful <laughs> um, in different ways. And that's sick. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very cool to get kind of involved in that community. Yeah, along um, those but lines. but it's not just you know obviously having like the big brand name people is awesome and you know love all those guys, but a lot of the other LPs that have invested in the fund that you know have, you know in many cases you Google their name and like nothing even comes up. Those people are also extremely helpful and will have introduced me to interesting deal opportunities and still introduced me to other investors and everything. So um, and then of course I have some investors who literally are like I want to give you money and I that's it. Like I don't really have time to like talk and mm -hmm. it's just a passive thing and that's fine. So yeah, the level of involvement, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure thing from the LP perspective. Yeah, that's sick. That's cool. And then from your perspective, um, as a VC to your companies, what's your USP of that value can add besides money or is it just money? You know, it's funny, man. Every single venture capital fund is like, we add value in this way and that way. And they try and make it seem like they're super helpful in varying ways. And I think in many cases that is true, but I think in a lot of cases it's uh, a bit overblown. Um, at the end of the day, the real critical thing that these startups need is money. Um, getting advice and introductions is obviously helpful, but you can get that from other sources. Um, we have tried, I would say the most significant way that Empath has added value to the companies is probably threefold. Um, we, in, we have a very strong network of other investors in the psychedelic space, so we've introduced a lot of these companies to other funds that have ended up investing in their rounds. Um, because so many people reach out to me about jobs and you know breaking into the psychedelics industry, I've compiled this Airtable that has like 200 people that want to work in psychedelics in it, and I have like copies of their resumes and everything. And... Um, Getting that database of candidates and offering that to my companies has been very helpful. Uh, I think two of the companies that we invested in have actually ended up sourcing director level hires from my network, which is pretty neat. Um, and then I've interviewed a, the majority of the founders on my podcast, which how helpful that is, I have no idea, but it seems cool <laughs> and everyone seems to kind of like it. So, yeah. yeah. That's it. No, that, but yeah, that's introductions, sick. hiring, and um, you know maybe some media exposure. Yeah, I see. I'm that's conscious we're cool. getting to the end, and I don't want to. Yeah. Um, no, it's good. Tie you up. Yeah, we got another 10, 15 minutes or so. We don't have to okay, go hard cool. stop. But yeah, okay, I want to know Ali about what you're thinking career wise because I know that you're kind of like torn between worlds. I'm, I'm interviewing yeah. you now. What's uh, <laughs> what's going on in your in your life? Um, yeah, so. It's basically. Are you still at the, the corporate job? I am still at the corporate job. Okay. Cool, and cool. as the months go on, I realize that it's definitely not going to be my life mm -hmm. 100%. And 
maybe I'll delay posting this. I don't know, but I feel like that's not a bad thing to say. Like, there's a lot to learn there, and it's sure. a great, great place to be. But yeah, it's just not aligned to who I am. And I have a few friends who work at startups, and the stuff I hear them talking about when they're working from home, like they're having meetings and they're having discussions of how to solve problems, and like the feedback they get is instant. Like they then implement this next week. Did it work? Did it not? Yeah. Whereas in a big corporate, this is how we do things. And to change that, which I'm actually trying to do with a few different things, you have to go essentially to the first, second or third person in the UK. And then from there, America. Endless paperwork, boxes need to yeah. be checked, all that bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like it's limiting my like creative and problem solving, actually, because mm-hmm. you do things the same way. And on the other side, obviously, I've got my website design agency, which is a lot of work. It started off, I felt like I started off when I had more free time. It seemed a lot easier, but now it's starting to seem a lot harder. Yeah, you work so, at a full-time job, plus trying to do professional-level work for clients. I'm sure it's crazy. Yeah, it is hard. Um, and I think the question is there is, like, essentially, do you do your own thing? Do you join someone else who's doing their own thing? Or do you join the big companies and learn all, like, best practices and stuff? Yeah. Um, which is why I asked you a lot of questions I did ask you. But I'm starting to lean towards, um, you're going to hate this. <laughs> I kind of want to get a job at McKinsey or Bain or BCG. No, I don't hate that. I think that's cool. Really? You'd probably, yeah, you'd probably learn a lot of, uh, the cool thing about those jobs is that you get exposure to a lot of different shit. That's yeah. exactly why I want to do it. Um, yeah. I know a guy who went there and now he's head of strategy at a startup. That's cool. And he's like, he's only like four years older than me or a few years older than me, but he sounds like he's about 35, 40 when I talk to him. Oh, really? Just that super professional corporate like dialogue type thing? Yeah. Just like problem solving, cutting away bullshit and getting to the main thing, Um, which is fair enough because let's be honest, he probably has worked 15 years in those four years. And I suppose that's something you have to ask yourself. Like, is that something uh, you're going to do? Because... Like, conversations like this, I wouldn't have time to do something like this. Right, right. Um, things like that. So, yeah. What do you think? What I mean, you assuming, assuming you can actually get a job at, you know, McKinsey or Bain or whatever, um, it's probably worth taking it. Which you is know, also... Having the, having the name not, on your resume will not probably... Not guaranteed open. at all. Right, yeah, right. Like, I mean, it's worth a try, like, you know, do the interview yeah. or whatever. But let's say you get a job offer from, like, Bain or whatever... I mean, yeah, do it. Get that that um, name on your resume is probably going to open like a ton, ton of doors. Um, one of the things that really kind of sucked for me about the hedge fund world, and I didn't realize how important this was until later, was like, like I said, I was sitting there writing code for like 10 hours a day, didn't talk to anyone, wasn't involved in like raising money from clients or nothing. I literally just like talked to my coworkers and my boss. And when I got out, like, Sounds like I'm talking about getting out of the army when I got out out, or when I got out of prison or whatever, I literally like knew fucking no one, dude. I didn't have like a big network of professional contacts that I could raise money from or recruit to help me start a company or what. So even though I had spent, you know, seven or whatever years working professionally, I felt like I was like a baby because I was just trying to build my network up from scratch. And for the vast majority of cool things that you want to do, whether it's like starting a startup or even just doing like the web design agency stuff, the human network is so critical. And I think that whether it's having just the 
high profile consulting firm on your resume or actually interacting with all the different people that you interact with, you're going to like actually build up a network that'll probably be better than mine. And like, that'll make it very easy or make it easier for you to, you know, start your own initiative at some point. So there's a lot of value in that. Yeah. You say that, but I think there's also, it's something to consider when you do work at these big consultancies, you might find that the network you develop, it might, could be super high up people at huge companies, but they're not necessarily useful people to know because they are in their industry, they're firmly planted. By the time they've got to those high positions, they've been there for like 30 years, usually. That's a fair point. So say you leave and you wanted to raise money, they'd be like, what the hell is psychedelics? And no, that's what... <laughs> no, it's a good... Yeah, do. yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the, the, the best network is going to be the network that is uh, the network around the thing that you want to work in. So yeah, um, in terms of like starting your own thing, are you... I mean, the web design thing, I don't think was ever your long-term life goal, but it was something that was in front of you that you could do. Um, do you have any other ideas outside of that? Um, there's been a few, but none, the, the straight answer is no, because I'm going to say none of them are developed enough. They're just sort of random yeah. ideas, but what about can, areas just like industries in general? I have a problem with being like kind of too open-minded at the moment. I, I, if I had to plan my, if I had unlimited time for the next year, I would spend similarly to you actually, I'd spend an hour doing crypto, an hour playing poker, an hour researching psychedelics, and then an hour making music. And obviously, as we were saying, like the slippage between doing different tasks, it's hard to... So I think I'm kind of waiting for something to happen yeah. where it, I'm like, okay, that's it. But like, the, guy back, that, uh, the guy that started the hedge fund that I worked at, the first hedge fund, the one that went from like one to 60, before that, like after he graduated from um, Yale, he spent like two years making a living being a poker player. <laughs> um, which is kind of funny. There's a lot of uh, like poker players that end up in the trading world. Mm. Do you ever play poker? Dude, I don't even know the rules of poker. I <laughs> don't even know how to play. Um, That's crazy. Yeah. But coming back to like the network thing, like you were my first client at Webof, like oh, yeah. first like professional client, let's say. And like the conversations we've had, mind expanding, I feel like there's tremendous value in that if you can use your skill in a certain area to get in contact with people and work with them. And it doesn't have to be, there's no transaction there other than like you both provide value for each other. Um, It's not like you're trying to find someone rich to then like invest in your company. It's like you can learn so much and be exposed to so many cool things just by having conversations with new people. And it adds a bit of like randomness to your life as well. Right, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, The podcast is a powerful tool for sure. Um, but yeah, just having conversations with people is, yeah, that's, that's where it all starts, man, (laughs) for sure. But I think, um, you know, I think you should maybe just rather than, you know, it's, it's easy to sit there and be like, oh, fuck, there's so many things I like. And you kind of get like paralyzed by all the choice. Um, so it can be helpful to maybe just like calendar out whether it's a week or a month and be like for this month, I'm just focusing on this one thing. I'm going to go deep and see where it leads. And then at the end, I'll decide if I'm going to continue or not. Um, having a bias towards action can be helpful because I know what it's like to kind of get stuck in the decision-making sphere. Um, yeah. I don't think that, I don't think that applying for a consulting job is like necessarily the, the worst thing. 
Um, if you do get it, you'll probably end up like most people that are consultants or in the hedge fund world, which is like after a year, they're like, I think I don't want to do this anymore, but it was a good experience. Um, so yeah, worth a try, but I don't think you should drop the ball on the web design stuff either, man. You've made like some pretty good inroads with some cool startups and, uh, you can probably like continue making money doing that and building your network out. My take. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. I think that's great advice as well. That's always... I definitely I'm going to try and remind myself more next year like yeah. action 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 yeah but I think the crypt you know crypto is probably in a bit of a dark spot for at least the next year the whole like FTX thing really cast a shadow over the industry that's going to take a while to lift um, but I don't know that doesn't mean there's not money to be made there but something to yeah. consider yeah for sure I just I've got a couple of friends who have like they did well oh, and yeah. it's 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 very it's, it's hard to focus on what you're interested in when you can see like that massive gold pot at the end of the rainbow but obviously what did they do were they trading or did they start a company or um trading mm. and investing interesting yeah yeah i never but really I mean, traded crypto super seriously i did at one point i built some algorithms that were trading um crypto derivatives for a while it ended up getting very distracting from my main job and i ended up shutting it down um so it's been a while since I really touched that. Yeah. But yeah, I know the crypto trading is, world is very inefficient and it's probably possible to make like a lot of money there if you really you know, know what you're doing. Yeah, for sure. But I'm also, it also looks to me like, like any early financial market yeah. that's unregulated. To be honest, unless you know what's going on, which some people probably do, then you're gambling, which is right. fine. Right. But you just have to be aware of that. Like when like so many things like Solana, that was a sure thing. And all the big VCs like, yep, yep, yep. And it loses like 90%. Luna, gone. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's wild. So, yeah. Dude, it's, it's yeah. crazy. Um, even some of the big name funds are like the injuries in Horowitz crypto fund is down. You know, there's like articles in the Wall Street Journal about it. Everyone's hurting. Um, yeah. And I, I am kind of surprised that like the FTX thing hasn't caused crypto to have like a massive crash. You know, crypto had obviously kind of crashed before that, but it didn't seem like the FTX thing really shook like Bitcoin and Ethereum specifically. Maybe it shook a lot of the shit coins, but Bitcoin seems mm. to kind of be where it was right before mm. it happened. I don't know. Kind of weird. Yeah, that is interesting. That is interesting. I wonder if that would be like delayed or. Yeah. 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 But. Anyway, I know you said let's go on, but I do want to make sure you're going to no, smash your Friday. Yeah, like we're getting to Christmas. Um, I've got three questions to end with. Let's like do sort it. Of quick, quick fire. All right. Um, fire. So first one, info diet. What are the three things you would recommend someone to eat? This Informational weekend? diet? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, dude. I'm so bad at this. I spend so much time just like doom scrolling Twitter. Um <laughs> I also, um, I'm a bad person to ask this. My info diet needs to be readjusted, honestly. Um, I have kind of tried to, here's what I will say. Um, I have cut out a lot of consumption just because I find that um, it's easy to like think you're learning things and sometimes you are, but a lot of times you're just kind of like entertaining yourself, even when you're just read, even when you're reading things that are supposed to be educational, you know, like uh, one classic example of this for me is like Andrew Huberman and like the Huberman lab podcast. I don't know if you've ever like listened to that before, Yeah, but it's like, 
you listen to like a fucking four hour episode and at the end it's like what i'm supposed to like drink water and go for a walk like that's like the day <laughs> I have now. um and 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 what i found is that when you're like constantly listening to podcasts or audiobooks or whatever or even just reading books you don't really like have time to generate your own ideas because you're constantly just being like input with other people's ideas so one of the big themes for me this past year has been like just like not listening to podcasts or audiobooks and like doing the dishes or cleaning my house in silence, believe it or not, you know? And if I'm going to like listen to something, it's music. That's actually a um, great answer. Yeah. I feel like no one says that, but yeah. So rather see that's true. Y- you see all these ads where it's like billionaires read 10 books a week or whatever. And yeah. I, I'm sure some of them do, but like that kind of seems like bullshit to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like well, anti-intellectual or anti-reading, and I mean I can give some book recommendations if like people want to read some books. Um, but um, yeah, I think in general, like most people have the skills already to like be successful in what they want to do, and the answer is not found in like the next self-help book or like the next podcast. The answer is just like fucking doing the work that you're supposed to be doing. Like that's it. You know, that's really it. Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. That's sick. Um, so talking about Andrew Huberman as well, I think he doesn't. He obviously says all these things, and it is scientifically based. Yeah. But then it doesn't include the placebo effect of the listener who then knows sure. that information and then mm-hmm. tries to do it. So yeah. if I wake up and I'm like, "Oh my god, I haven't seen sunlight," I'll be at work and I'm like, "I'm just not working at my all right. peak productivity." And then it actually ruins your day. <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, there's definitely, I mean, and I'm not trying to like rag on Huberman specifically, like obviously the stuff is scientifically based and he's a yeah, smart yeah. dude, but like, yeah, of course. when you look at, you look at all the successful people in the past, like, dude, you think like Bill Gates, like read the four hour work week and like cared about yeah, like his yeah. cold shower in the morning. Like, dude, he just fucking got it. Yeah. Like, did the thing, you know? Yeah, and that's like what shit. most people that have been successful yeah. have done. <laughs> they just yeah. fucking do the thing. 100%. That's great advice. Yeah. Okay. Question number two. Two celebrities you could date. You've got three seconds. Oh, Jesus Christ. Celebrities that I could date. <laughs> Dude, I don't even know. Um, oh, my God. I would date... Um, this shows how little pop culture I consume. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Taylor Swift is my same age. Um, seems, you know, like not the worst idea. And, okay. Um, you know, if I was going to have a gay experience, it seems like I should probably have it with Hugh Jackman. That seems like a good... Um, <laughs> <laughs> in his Wolverine era. Yeah, nice, nice. And then the last one, um, what's the most important thing? I think you've covered it with action, but maybe something else. Like, what's the most important thing? It doesn't have to be a 20-year-old, but someone who's at the start of an uphill journey to their sort of dreams and aspirations and doing something that's not within the nine-to-five. Mm-hmm. What's something to bear in mind to remember? I would say the biggest thing is that um, on the journey, you can often you, you'll like find yourselves in situations where you're like if I just stick this out a little bit longer then I'll be ready to like do the thing that I actually want to do I did a lot of this um, in the hedge fund space where I was like if I just like wait until the next bonus or like wait until my bank account hits the certain level or I like wait until I get the CFA thing or I like wait until I get my master's degree then I'll finally be like legit enough to do my own thing. Um, A lot of that stems from like insecurity. It's like, I don't really believe in myself enough. So I have to like get these external validators, whether it's like financial validation or like academic credential validation. 
And to some extent, that line of thinking is like correct. Like you do need to have some level of legitimacy, but it's probably like a lot less than you think. And it's probably better to just do the thing that you really want to do. If you're like in a situation for more than six months and you really don't feel good about it, there's like that thing in your gut that's like, I should be doing something else, then you should probably listen to that feeling, whether it's with a job, whether it's with dating someone, or if even if it's in like a um, educational program, if you like signed up for a master's degree and like six months and you're like, I don't know, this is the best use of my time. You should probably actually quit. Um, there's a lot of pressure and a lot of stigma around bailing on jobs too early. Oh, what is that going to do to your resume if people see that you quit after six months? Fuck it. Just fucking do it. Um, same thing about school. Um, if you're not, if you're not really into the thing that you're doing, um, and you don't have that like, fuck yes feeling about it, then you should probably listen to that and move on to something. Yeah. That's really it. Yeah. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's my advice I would say. Yeah. Okay. Sick. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been unreal. Um, everyone check out the Brom podcast and empath ventures. You heard it here. This man loves a cold email. So yeah, (laughs) send me a good cold email. Flood them (laughs) Um, in. (laughs) Yeah. Twitter DMS are open people. (laughs) So go for it. All right. Thanks Brom. See you, man.